Well, we're continuing our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so if you turn in your bulletins, it's printed there for you. Remember last week I said the greatest pressing problem in the North American church has to do with our lack of, or in fact disobedience to Christ's command to make disciples of all peoples. In fact, it's not just making disciples, it's being a disciple of Jesus. That, that is the inherent problem in our country. As we look and see all the things that are happening in our country, we can say, what happened? Well, that, that's what happened, is the church failed and has failed to make disciples and to be disciples of Jesus. That's the problem. But we can't put all the blame on just the churches, can we? Because those churches are led by leaders. And so this morning, I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 11 and realize that the first domino that falls is a failure of Christ-like leadership. A failure of Christ-like leadership. Because we see in Paul, you see this in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so Paul knew, just as Jesus knew, that there had to have been a humble leadership to model for people. So can I speak real candidly with you this morning? I know through conversations with each of you and many of you, and if you've been in the church for any length of time, that you've been hurt by a leader. You've been hurt by a pastor or a ministry leader. Every single person in here in some way, shape, or form has been hurt by someone in leadership in a church. Maybe a pastor said something, made a promise to you, and they didn't fulfill that promise. Maybe they didn't have the courage to tell you what you needed to hear. Maybe a pastor pushed an agenda of self-promotion instead of exalting Jesus and humbly coming underneath someone. So I lament the fact that so much that's wrong in our churches has to do with a failure of Christ-like leadership. See, as much as I would like to make excuses for leaders, as much as I'd like to say, well, there are podcasts and there are books on, on Christian leadership, there's all of this material and all these conferences, and a pastor or a ministry leader can't help but, but believe that if it's just by power, they can lead. If they can just do enough envisioning. If they can just do enough trying to get people on the boat. But see, the problem isn't podcasts or publishing. The problem lays at the leader's feet. They made the decision to be self-aggrandizing. They made the decision to be self-promoting. They made the decision to not serve like Jesus served. And so I publicly as a pastor, want to apologize to everyone on behalf of pastors. And we failed you all. We failed to lead the church as Jesus led the church. And that's no small matter. That's no small matter, is it? And so what I hope to do today is to paint a picture from 2 Corinthians of what Christ-like leadership looks like and what I want it to look like in my own life. But I don't want to just paint the picture for myself and so thereby letting you know what you should expect from me when it comes to Christ-like leadership. But I hope that by looking at these examples within Paul's own ministry, that you yourself will also be cut to the heart and say, that's what I need to look like too. 
Because leadership doesn't just end with the leader. And in some capacity, all of us in Redeemer are going to lead something. There's some kind of passion that you have. There's some kind of ministry that God is calling you to lead in our church. And this is what I pray that even as we are just a dozen households right now, that God by His Spirit would impress upon us as a church to be these kind of leaders. To be the kind of leaders that look like Paul and not like a super apostle. I've been really shocked, and I hope you have too, with the applicability of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because it's really easy to say, yeah, the, the Bible's profitable for us right now, but have you seen within the pages the city of Greenville? Or the city of wherever you come from? Because I promise you that this is still a problem. Just as we look back in Jeremiah 9 last week to see that there's this problem of, of idolatry, and so it's the case for us in Greenville, and so the case of poor leadership happened in Corinth, but it also happens in Greenville. So I'd like for us to look at several implications for what it means to lead, and thereby I'm talking about myself, but then I'm also talking about you as you seek to lead ministries. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 together. 2 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Oh, do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you all in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself? so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And what am I doing? Or, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles... Deceitful workmen, distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. 
What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, and I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, and I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this chapter that challenges us to look out and to lament the fact that we suffer from shepherds who do not take care of its sheep. And yet we are also called to look in and to see our own hearts that deceive us, thinking that we are better than others. That we wouldn't do what they did to me. And yet, Father, your word reminds us that we too are in need of a Savior because we are self-aggrandizing. We are self-centered. We are constantly looking to promote our agenda. So, Father, we pray first that you would forgive us for our sins are many. In that spirit, you would come and speak to us, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've got five quick points that I want to share that we get from the text. And I wish that I could share more because this is not a sermon on leadership per se. It's a sermon on 2 Corinthians 11 that has implications for leadership. So there are five points here. First, ministry is a matter of life and death. It's not just merely a vocation, it's a matter of life and death. Look at this first, uh, these first two, the first, uh, actually verse two. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. That's a really charged way of saying something is, "I, I am divinely jealous for you. So what is Paul getting at? What is Paul getting at in this concept of divine jealousy? Well, I believe it comes from Exodus 34, where we see the preeminent one, God, who identifies himself 
as a jealous God. And see, this is right before, so Moses had come down the mountain, he had destroyed the two tablets out of anger, he had thrown them, broken them, and then he went back up because the people of Israel had committed idolatry and adultery with the golden calf. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to receive a second set of tablets. But before he receives those tablets, God says to him this in Exodus 34. He says, Observe what I command you, Israel, this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and so commit adultery against the Lord. This sequence of going in, demolishing all of these idols so that you don't commit adultery by committing idolatry is what Paul is picking up on here. He's saying, I have a divine jealousy for you. Why? Look at the second half. Because I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So from the beginning, we see that going after other gods is not just merely a matter of preference. It's not just merely some kind of syllogistic argument that, okay, this, then this, then this, therefore I'm going to obey God. But that there is a heart disposition on the part of each one of us to follow after God, the jealous God. And sure, there were probably folks in the land as Israel was going into the land, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and so forth. Sure, they were probably saying, your God's not really God. You need to follow our God. And so they gave this, these fine-sounding arguments of just follow these lines. But I would consider, and I think that most of the temptations that you see throughout Scripture that play out after Exodus 34, most of the temptations to run away from God are not fine-sounding arguments. They're smooth-sounding words of pleasure. Hey, why don't you go over to the temple with us and sacrifice to Asherim? Hey, why don't you just come along with us? We've we got a lot better things to do than to worship your God. Sometimes they're words of equivocating, aren't they? Your way of doing things isn't all that different from my God's way of doing things, so why don't you just worship my God? Save yourself some time. We already have the altar built. Let's just worship Asherim together. Sometimes, sometimes, they plant doubts in our hearts, doubts in our minds, wondering whether God is really that good. Have you ever heard this before? Man, you're such a square. Why don't you go out and have some fun with us? You ain't living if you don't try this. And so the temptation to follow after other gods is not coming full throttle right at you, but it's a subtle, smooth word of saying maybe that way isn't all that great maybe you should try this and if we are not careful if you and I are not careful the subtleness of the words will lead us astray you see it's easier to see a war coming when they're wielding clubs but that's not typically how Satan works he comes as an angel of light comes to deceive comes to say things to make you wonder if what you believe is true. You see, our job as Christians and our job as pastors 
is not to just double down on fixing it on a more stringent life. It's not just giving each of us more lists of do's and don'ts. That's not the Christian life. That's not the kind of life that we see or ministry that we see in Paul, is it? Our job is to help others be so enamored with the grace and mercy of God. As a bride and a bridegroom love each other and don't want to run astray because they're so enamored with the one they love, that's what ministry is supposed to be about. I betrothed you to one husband, says the Apostle Paul, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so the Christian life is not just arguing your way, though it is that, but it's not merely just arguing your way to truth. But it's getting so enraptured in the love of God in Christ that you want to not run to any other fountain. And so maybe you're struggling this morning because you think that that temptation isn't that bad. Maybe you think that, hmm, I can do that and I can still do this. But we see here that there is a a pure devotion to Jesus. A pure devotion that Paul and as a church we are seeking to have. So it's about the heart and the mind. But we see also the severity of this task, this this ministry of life and death, because a lot of times don't we just try to just try to make it just sound like a mere preference or yeah, it's really not that important that we haven't seen this person in church for for several weeks or it's really not that important that they're doing x y or z. See, that's not what we see in Scripture. We don't see, uh, you know, they're just kind of working through some sin issues. No, what we see here is that God is so in love with you that he is willing to do what is necessary to bring you back to him, namely through Jesus. And we also see the subtlety of these enticements that, that we see here in Scripture, that it's not just a matter of, hey, you just need to stop believing in Jesus. No, it's more a matter of Jesus plus something else will make you happy. We see this in our second image in the Garden of Eden. Verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve had been deceived with smooth-sounding speech. You see this deception later on in our passage in verses 13 and 15, which we won't have time to get into. But she had been deceived not only by the serpent's words, but she had been deceived by what she saw. Right? She saw that the fruit was good and pleasant to the eyes and that it would make her wise. And so we see here also that you and I, if we aren't careful, that our perceptions will be led astray that, wow, I want to follow after the really confident person. I want to follow after the person that's got everything together. I want to follow that person who puffs out their chests and flexes their arms to say, that's the kind of church that I want to be involved in. That's the kind of leader that I want to follow is the one who has got it all together. And yet, so many times we have our sin goggles on. So many times we have our own preferences and our own self interests taking taking precedent over what God has shown us. See, Eve was led away by a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So imagine, if you would, that if you're in the garden 
and you see Eve getting ready to take that apple, or that fruit, more accurately, you see her taking that fruit, what are you going to do? Imagine you're standing in the garden, you see Eve. Here I come. What you, you're going to do everything you can to rip that thing out of her hand. Because Eve, don't you know what you're doing? You're putting all of your family at risk. You're putting your entire future at risk because of that little enticement. And yet we so oftentimes think, well, they're just kind of working through stuff. No, the ministry, the Christian ministry is a matter of life and death. Your sin is not something to be dabbled with. It's a matter of life and death. If in the garden, if you would say, get that out of your hand, Eve, why would you not do that in your own life? Why would you not do that in someone else's life who you love? So leadership doesn't take its task lightly or just as a matter of course. Secondly, we see that Christian leadership is antithetical to the world's ways. Look at verses 4 through 6, I think, plays this out. We've spent several weeks looking at how the super apostles had put confidence in their slick presentations. They had tried to get people to buy into their certain brand of church. They sold the t-shirts. They sold out conferences. They sold a teaching. They sold an anointing that only they could dispense, and they sold out Jesus. And in our day, it's what is it called? It's often called influence. It's often called having a greater impact in the world. Don't hear me wrong. I think influence is important. And I think that having a greater impact in the world is important. But so many times the Christian church, in the name of influence and having a greater impact, has sold the world a bill of goods. Has sold the world flashiness has sold the world smoke machines and laser lights. That's not the Christian life, is it? That's not what we're called to. That, that Christianity is not meant to be just this place where you go and you consume, but it's a meant to be a place where you die and give yourself to others. And see, we don't, we don't try to have an influence and a greater impact at the expense of rejoicing when different congregations flourish. Not at the expense of putting other churches down or other Christians down because they don't do things the way we do them. You see, may our vision of Jesus become so all-encompassing and all-enrapturing that we are laser focused on what God has called us as a church to do. And we don't look to the right or to the left and say, man, why are they doing that? I can't believe that church does that. No, let's just focus on Jesus as a church. That's enough to last us the rest of our lives instead of worrying about what's going on around us. There's plenty of work to do. And we're called to be faithful with what God has called us to do. You see, if we're careful, we can look around and we can say, man, we need to be doing this or we need to be doing that so we can get more people. See, the goal of this church is not to get more people. Surprise. The goal of this church is that we are authentic disciples. Because if the fruit is good, then it will be fruitful. We don't aim just to get a whole mass of people. And so I think as Redeemer, we need to really consider that God's ways are antithetical to the world's ways. Christian leadership does not look like just gathering a whole slew of people and saying, I'm successful. Success in this church will be determined by how well we know each other 
and how well we reach out to others. How deep and vibrant our love for Jesus is. This pure, unmitigated, unaltered devotion to Jesus. That, that's the goal on the wall. Not more people. More people will come as we are disciples. But we don't aim for the more people. We aim for the authentic, true disciples who love Jesus purely, sincerely, generously. Thirdly, Christian leadership is relational, not transactional. Christian leadership is relational, not transactional. You can see this in verses 7 through 11 in your own time. And I'd encourage you, since I'm not like going word by word here, just to kind of put brackets next to it and say, oh, that's point three. It's relational, not transactional. So what do I mean by that? Paul was not motivated by getting a lot of money. It cost him more to do ministry than it did for him to be a tent maker. He could have really got his, his business up and running if he would have just spent more time on his marketing for his tents. But Paul laid it down. He says, I will spend more time studying Isaiah, studying the Psalms so that I can teach God's people. So he wasn't motivated by a love of money. He wasn't motivated by more excess He valued the growth and devotion of the Corinthians. He valued that more than being able to have a pay-to-play mentality in Christianity. See, the super apostles had said, if you give me money, then I'm going to speak really eloquently for you. It's really easy to want people to speak really eloquently, isn't it? And say, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. But here we see... That Paul was more concerned about the glory of King Jesus than he was about his own pocketbook. Fourthly, Christian leadership doesn't serve with a sense of entitlement. Doesn't serve with a sense of entitlement. You see, this point is more implicit in how the super apostles operate, but you can see it really clearly in verse 20. For you bear it if someone makes a slave of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. And my friends, this is really evident today in interacting with many leaders, even within our churches, who believe, you'll hear these things, but they believe that people aren't grateful enough. People don't thank them enough. People don't give them their just desserts. They, they need a pay raise. They need a better house. They need better clothes. And if those people just gave them more. And you start to hear some leaders saying, I deserve more than the people that I'm serving. And so they get frustrated when people have questions or challenge decisions that they make as leaders because they have this sense of entitlement. They're on high alert that people might be better at something than they are. They're looking around for the latest divisive person that's going to wreck their ministry. And in their hearts, they're nervous and scared because they're putting confidence in their own chest puffing. I did say chest puffing and not chest pumping. Now, where you pump? No, that's bumping, chest bumping. Yeah, not that. Chest puffing. So they don't put their confidence there. They don't put their confidence in what they can do. Right? You see, this is highly different than what the Apostle Paul did, isn't it? You don't, you don't see this in Paul's life. In fact, he's, he's giving over this sense of argument like, if you all want to boast, I'm going to be a fool 
And he's not just pulling that out of this fool as a in, in the book of Proverbs, the fool who's a wicked person. And so Paul says, I'll be a fool like you'll be a fool about boasting about these things. And so he enters into this argument and he goes on a litany of what he's willing to do to serve the Corinthians. He was shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned. Yet, I don't think the Apostle Paul ever came up to the pulpit half beaten and says, Listen, guys, I, I got beat up. You need to shut up and listen up right now because I got something to say. That's, that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's not saying, look at what I've suffered for you all. You better listen to me. He never had the sense of like, I got beaten yesterday, so you better listen. There was no entitlement on his part. He came as a servant. He came as Jesus came, beaten and bruised. And he said, I have no sense of entitlement here. I have come to serve you and love you. Because you are more important than me. You see, the Apostle Paul just kept plugging along and didn't need to recount his sufferings. So when we lead something at Redeemer, when we serve in some capacity at this church, let's not keep a record of what we've done. Let's not try to list out in our journals, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And nobody's ever said thank you. Man, ungrateful people. Because what will that do? That'll make us just a bunch of bitter, joyless people who don't commend the gospel. Because it doesn't look a lot like Jesus does. And so a leader leads from love. In fact, a leader first and foremost, and this is our last point, a leader, a Christian leader, is a servant. Christian leader is a servant. Christian leadership begins, middles, and ends in servanthood. Someone who approaches leadership any other way is trying to bolster their confidence, is doing it for their own selves. You see, it it seems totally lost on authors and conference speakers that this is the preeminent piece of being a Christian leader. You see, leaders are only as good as they serve. In fact, has anybody ever considered that a leader is only a leader if there are people following them? There's nothing inherent within that leader. It's the people that follow him that make him or her a leader. And so we need to remember that that leader exists to serve the people that follow. See, I've sat in a lot of Christian leadership seminars. I've listened to a lot of podcasts on Christian leadership. And there have been principles given on empowering and strategizing and giving vision and mission and all this stuff. But there's one gaping hole in these presentations. That's the fact that we are called first and foremost to be servants of all. Because what happened when the, when the sons of Zebedee came, to, actually their, their mother came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. I'd encourage you to go visit that in your own time. But Matthew 20, their mom comes up to Jesus and says, Let my boy sit on your right hand and your left hand in your, when you come into your power. And what does Jesus say to them? Jesus says to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
You see, Paul says this much, doesn't he? It wasn't about him. It was about serving others, serving the Corinthians, serving God's people. He didn't keep a record of what he had done. It wasn't out of a sense of proving his self-worth. Look at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. See, Paul knew, and you and I have got to know, that all leadership is first servanthood. First and foremost is servanthood. Not simply to the people being served, though, is it? It's not just what I am doing for you all. But in our service to other people, we're serving Jesus. We're serving our king, the servant of all, who modeled what true kingship is. It's that that comes down and washes people's feet. In other words, all leadership must point to Jesus, to his life, his death, his resurrection, his example of what we ought to be, and that you and I are not going to get it. You and I are going to fail. I'm going to fail you all if I haven't already. And I've said that before and I'll keep saying it. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. But my heart's desire is to serve. And my prayer for us as Redeemer that we would seek to serve and not keep a record of all that we've done. Not seek to say, I'm going to finally be somebody someday. But to be able to say, I'm just a humble servant serving my King. And so, my friends, as you look around our evangelical landscape and churches, don't get deceived and swept aside by slick presentations. Take a stutter who serves and sacrifices over a polished and proud pastor. Take a stutter over a proud man. Take someone who loves over someone who feels entitled. Take a mouse who is running after King Jesus than someone who claims to be a lion and pounds their chest. Take someone who shares and is not ashamed of their weakness over someone who hides and hedges and tries to pretend like they have it all together. That, my friends, is Christian leadership. It's a leadership that serves because it loves. It's a leadership that doesn't take account of all that it's done and that at the end of the day it says, I am just a servant of the King. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for all of us. That we would serve in the strength that God supplies so that he gets the glory, not us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that in your son Jesus, we see the preeminent example of a king who had all authority in heaven and on earth, became a servant to the uttermost giving his life for others. May it be so with us. Amen. Will you please stand as we sing in response, It is well with my soul.